0: printed there for you, Old Testament reading as most of them, maybe even all of them are, especially in the morning service uh, throughout Advent from uh, the book of Isaiah, and this will be our uh, sermon text. I'll draw some from uh, Matthew 11, but our primary text will be Isaiah 47. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne. O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off the skirt. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not arbitrate with a man. As for our Redeemer... The Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be given, hold on, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily. You said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children. And widowhood, they shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you and you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. Trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators, that's fortune tellers stand up and save you from what shall come upon you behold they shall be as stubble the fire shall burn them they shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame it shall not be a coal to be warmed by nor fire to sit before thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored your merchants from your youth they shall wander each one to his quarter no one shall save you Amen. Then from Matthew 11, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say uh, to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Or what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft or effeminate garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Part of the work of the ministry is to imitate John the Baptist to imitate John the Baptist. Children, uh, maybe you know the experience of reading your Bible and learning to live like those who are presented in the text, especially and hopefully exclusively those who are faithful. All who ascend to the pulpit, all who preach the word of the Lord, go up as messengers preparing the way Of the Lord. What does this mean, this phrase to prepare the way of the Lord? It's one of those more open ended, kind of vague phrases in Scripture that points to several things. I'm going to give you two of them. First, we could say that John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord to walk during his earthly ministry. Children, do you know what a battering ram is? Maybe you've seen in movies or read in books about knocking down a door, right? Imagine a battering ram blowing through a giant wall so you could walk through it. John the Baptist in some way made room for Jesus like that. The one for whom there was no room in the inn, had a prophet serve him named John, to make room for him. Another way to consider it is that of making the way of Christ open or clear. Rather than thinking of it as a space uh, cleared for Christ, think of it as the people being prepared for Christ, being cleared out for Christ. He made the way to the Lord known he made known what it is to come to the Lord in faith and to walk with him. And this, this latter one is going to be our focus this morning using Isaiah 47. We are, by God's grace, going to see the, these two overarching things. What it is to be prepared to walk with the Lord and also what it is to be prepared to meet him someday. So walking with the Lord and preparing to meet him someday, either at our death or his return. And that is the purpose of Advent, to prepare us for the coming of Christ. But what is God doing in Isaiah 47? It's maybe a little confusing to figure out who he's talking to at certain points. But the overarching thing that God is doing in Isaiah 47 is he is taunting Babylon, a nation, a nation that did not know him. Remember Babylon, children, the place where the book of Daniel is written. You have Nebuchadnezzar, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to that giant idol. That's the people that are being spoken of here. It was a place that the Lord had exiled his people. He had sent them there so that they would receive a very long and hopefully uh, instructive spanking, as it were. But it appears even in the text that the Lord wanted Babylon to notice their purpose. Maybe you uh, picked up on that at the beginning where he brings out the fact that uh, they did not remember the latter end. You did not take these things to heart. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, meaning the older folks and the people of God, they showed no mercy. Babylon was supposed to treat his people kindly and consider the point of which God sent uh, the old covenant people into exile there. I don't know how else to frame it other than God is desiring not just the repentance of Israel in their being exiled to Babylon, but also the repentance of Babylon to see to it that they would come to know and serve the Lord. That didn't happen. They laid a heavy yoke on Israel, it says, and showed them no mercy. But now what Isaiah is saying to the people of God, to uh, Babylon as well, is that the Lord is going to judge Babylon for the way that they treated the Lord's people. Even though the Lord had sovereignly, sent them into an exile in Babylon, he's moving them even further down the register of damnation, from one degree of hell to another. Before this and much more, the Lord, our Redeemer, Jehovah of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, is going to mock and judge them. That verse on about the the fifth line there, where uh, the quotation ends, and then it says, As for our Redeemer... The Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. It's kind of like an interlude in the passage where God was talking through Isaiah to Babylon. This is what's going to happen to you. But then the faithful among the people of God saying, but our Redeemer, this is who he is. He is not uh, like your gods, but he is going to judge your gods. He mocks them. At the beginning of the text when he calls them a virgin daughter, a daughter, a lady of the kingdoms, it's because they imagine themselves to be pure. They imagine themselves to be uh, greater than Israel, greater than the people of God and greater than the God of Israel themselves. That's why you have those those quotes in Isaiah 47 where it's almost like they're calling themselves I am. No one sees I am this. I am that. They imagine themselves to be pure, saying no one sees. But the fact is, this is not just true for Babylon, but true for us. If the scale of being good is simply that which is seen by others, anybody can meet that scale. Anybody can be good on that scale. That's why they say no one sees. No one really knows. But the point is God knows this enemy, this oppressor and tempter of the covenant people, the church of old is commanded by the God of Israel to come and sit down. Right. This worldly power, God says, sit down and sit here in the dust. Sit in silence and go into darkness. Well, I told you a moment ago that Isaiah 47 can be framed to help us walk with the Lord aright and be prepared to meet Him. How is that the case? Well, there's two ways that I'm going to focus on for a moment. Two ways that Isaiah 47 helps us to walk with the Lord and be prepared to meet Him. The first is we can walk with the Lord knowing that He sees everything. That's part of the judgment, the warning, the condemnation that he gives over Isaiah 47. Now for the faithful, that is both a fear and a comfort. A godly fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that kind. But the fact that God sees all is only a fear or a terror to evil. It is an an encouragement to those who are good that God sees them, but it's a warning. To those who simply say, no one sees. God sees and won't forget. So that's the first thing. And then the second is meant to prepare us to walk with the Lord and ultimately meet him. Because this shows that God is in control even of his enemies. I don't think we grasp this quite enough. That Babylon is not a denomination. Babylon is a country. Babylon is a people as a whole. They're not a small people within a larger group. They are the Babylonians. And all that comprised, uh, or all that made them up, is being addressed here. This doesn't mean that everyone in Babylon was as wicked as Nebuchadnezzar was. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that God judges nations as nations he judges peoples as peoples and i want to make this point because i'm going to kind of sidetrack for a moment and then come back to it but in isaiah 47 we need to know that god doesn't just see us and know us and in control of us but god does that for all nations he sees and is in control. And sometimes we can lose grasping, lose grasp of that. We can lose that fact. We don't know, as we ought, to recognize when things like Isaiah 47 is happening to other countries. You know the phrase, the the men of Issachar, those who knew the times. We struggle with this. Sometimes we don't like it when pastors try to uh, preach on that fact, knowing the times. But we can be, quite frankly, tempted to think wrongly about nations that are under the judgment of God. And it leads us to do all kinds of things. We can be tempted to befriend those who are more like Babylon and then warm ourselves by her fires. I'm going to get uh, pretty pointed here uh, for just a moment but I think you'll see why it's the case. We forget the fact that God sees and God is in control of all things. We may be tempted to trust in the enemies of God and the enemies of his Christ, but we must not do so. There are many Hamans, remember Haman preparing the gallows. There are many Hamans preparing places for the church to be killed upon that will ultimately prove to serve their own condemnation. This happens because Satan cloaks himself as an angel of light. We don't recognize Haman's initially. We're disabled from knowing what time it is, from knowing what is really happening. How often do we say the phrase like, if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now? That's kind of the idea I'm addressing. It can cause us this inability to discern other nations being under God's judgment. It can cause us to trust or find comfort in an enemy of the Lord. Think about how the people of God responded when he brought them out of Egypt. Can we go back? I like their comforts better. You may be tempted to think that the Lord will not discipline you. And give you over to your own type of exile as he did the people of old. There are many people We're all tempted towards this idea of reading the warning passages of Scripture. And just kind of chuckling about it. Huh, I would never do that. Look what they got. They got what they deserved. They did. But the prideful heart that comes to these passages to wag a finger is missing the point. God is teaching a lesson for his people to learn here. The Lord and his warnings come to us because we've been lulled to sleep by our comforts and our blindness. If God is in control of Babylon, he's in control of everybody. Don't imagine that he's not in control now. He can use those foreign powers, those crude and awful enemies Just as much today to discipline and punish his own so that they'll return to him as he has in his past. And having returned, his people are made ready to meet with him and to worship him. We have to be men of the times, men of Issachar, who can look and discern what is going on. We are sadly in an age where the church has been duped by her enemies, not able to even see the judgment of God upon either our enemy or upon ourselves. What is an example of this today? An example of a world power or a a people that the church is tempted to trust in or to not think that God is using to discipline his church. The first group is the nation known as Israel. Listen to me here. Of late, so-called Christians in the West, and I say over the last hundred years or so, so so-called Christians of the West have been yoked to the Jews through false teaching like dispensationalism. This has affected the church, and it has affected the nation, leading to an abundance of money, to our own crippling, being sent to them by not just the state but by the church even though john calls those who deny that jesus christ has come into the flesh he calls them the name of antichrist only the enemy of god could weave a web like that another is the religion of islam they are a frequent scourge to christianity throughout history And it's no different today. But the Lord is in control of them. And you must believe that he can and does use them to punish and purify his church. Muslims have made it widely known that they believe America serves Satan. Now step back for a minute. And tell me that's not the case. Maybe you saw the news in Iowa this past week. The Capitol building in Iowa, the Church of Satan was allowed to set up a statue, a goat, whatever, a satanic statue. A Christian gentleman from the state of Mississippi goes and tears it down. Did you see what happened to him? He was arrested. The man who destroyed an idol of the supreme enemy of the Lord Jesus and his people, the accuser of the brethren, he was arrested. Not the officials who permitted it to be set up. Not the Satanists who assembled it. The man who was seeking to honor Christ. This is in Iowa, not California. You tell me whom it is more likely that we served. Our enemies have a better understanding. Our historical and avowed enemy, the Muslims, understand what is going on better than the leadership of our country and better than many so-called Christians. Why are these things worthy of addressing? Because the church of the Lord Jesus in the West is, by and large, afraid of these groups. I have one more to mention in just a moment. The enemy is behind all three of them. They're not the only three. But they are three that we are tempted to view the way the church of Babylon, or the way the church of old would have viewed Babylon. They forgot that Babylon was being disciplined by the Lord. They began to be like Babylon because they did not understand the times, just as Babylon did not understand the times. Therefore, when the Lord visited with his judgment, they, like Babylon, had their nakedness uncovered and their shame uncovered. Was shown. The way of the Lord is made clear when his people know all that he sees and that he is in control of all things. He sees what his enemies do, he sees what his people do, he sees what all nations do. He is in control of these things and he mocks those that can't imagine otherwise. He promises his powerful judgment to all those who would trust in any. Besides him. What we want to do through Isaiah 47 is to join those who have that refrain saying the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. He is our redeemer. Now, in Isaiah 47, when it says the Holy One of Israel, you must understand Israel and the way that Paul speaks of Israel. In the book of Romans, the Israel of God is no longer limited to one place. All Israel is not Israel. Jesus sent the Spirit and drove his people, the true and continuing Israel, all across the globe. The apostles of the Lord Jesus brought this message of the authority of the Messiah to the ends of the earth. We, like the Colossians we've been hearing in Sunday school, have had our own versions of Epaphras in our lives to teach us the gospel faithfully. And upon believing that gospel, we are brought into the Israel of God. These fathers become our fathers. And we participate in this people of God that he has been building since the beginning of time. We, the Israel of God or the church of God, both names are appropriate of those who believe on the Lord Jesus. We know that he does not tolerate us trusting in any other but him. But we also need to know that he does not tolerate anyone else trusting in another God besides him either. And that they are the way they are because they worship false gods and they will be destroyed. Look at how he calls out their enchantments and sorceries. He says they have trusted in these since their youth. They will not be able to profit from them. Those things will be laid waste before the Lord, he says. Nothing will prevail against him. Notice he does not tell them these things are not real. He makes it clear that they are, but that they are weaker than and ultimately no match for him. The Lord judges unbelieving lands for not trusting him. And he judges them for their specific sins, even the nations that have <coughs> <coughs> excuse me an abundance of counselors like astrologers and stargazers and fortune tellers again these monthly prognosticators some translations uh, use the word like new moon because they were relying on the new moon for their monthly predictions that's who's being addressed here those things are still around friends don't mess with them look at how the lord mocks them he says It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Excuse me. What's going on here when he says this? Remember the chapter is God mocking them. What would it be that they thought was a coal to be warmed by or a fire to sit before? It would be the results of the judgment. Right? Right? Because when God judges, the scriptures often use the imagery of fire, right? So these nations that are being judged, they're under the the wrathful fire and vengeance of God. And there would be a fire, as it were, like a commotion from it. Now imagine, with that clear imagery painted, how dumb you'd have to be to look on an obvious judgment from God, like these idols that would be consumed with fire, Think of going back to Sodom and Gomorrah because it was cold and the fire was nice. That's the idea that's being presented here. Imagine how dumb you'd have to be to think that a punishment on a judgment is something provided for you to make yourself comfortable. What is a punishment for sin that we've used to make ourselves comfortable today? Right? Right? Because it sounds like, who would be that dumb? I'll give you one. The way that the credit and interest system works today. We know the system is corrupt, but instead of repenting of it, we snuggle up next to it to warm ourselves. More and more debt being accrued because it enables me to be comfortable. right? Here's another one. I almost mentioned this earlier, but I think it fits better here, is the uh, curse and scourge that egalitarianism and feminism are to our country. Now, egalitarianism means that all people and all, basically all things is where they really want to drive it. All things are equal, that nothing really matters. There are no distinctions. And feminism... What may have started as an assertion that men and women are equal has become women are superior to men. The way the church uses these teachings, and it is horrific. Men support the error just as much as women. The way the state uses this teaching is horrific. We've been sold over to it in the name of being nice. Now, if you don't think it's rampant, one of my favorite examples to use, and you might say that's unfair once I give this example, but I've been a Christian my whole life. I've heard lots of Mother's Day sermons and Father's Day sermons. They always go just like this. We need to support our mothers, and dads, you need to step it up. That's it. That's the only flavor you get, right? Now, women do need to be supported. Fathers do need to step it up. But women also need to step up. And fathers need to be supported. Why do you think that imbalance is there? Because we believe the lie, not seeing it as a judgment. God says in Isaiah chapter 3, when women and children are your leaders, you are under God's judgment. Again, these things are worthy of addressing because they are perennial issues in the church. The fruits of these things We simply sit right by them and say, ah, this feels nice. An example of this, why do you think we can't afford things anymore on one income? One income. It's not just because they raise the rates. They're doing that to bring mothers out of the home. Things are more expensive. So the women will have to go into the workforce and then who's left with your children? Right? Right? It's not that, oh, things are just more expensive. I need a higher paying job. No, we need a less corrupt leadership, less corrupt market. We have to understand these things. You don't combat them by playing the game with them. You see the error and respond accordingly. You see Babylon going up in flames. Don't go sit next to the fire and say, this is nice. I can have two incomes. I can have more stuff now. That's not the point. You're missing it. You've been duped because we, we have to be careful. We're not so smart that we automatically discern what the fires of judgment are for. Remember what Peter did when he denied the Lord? He went and sat by a fire. This feels good. Probably cold in Jerusalem that night. Sometimes we can even be duped into thinking that These things are meant to keep us warm. But God is exposing Babylon so that Israel will see, we, the true Israel of God. And he tells them, this is a warning to them, a warning to us. They cannot really be ready for the hammer when it falls if this is how they live. Think about it. The Lord says, desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. The Babylonians would have no excuse. God is warning them that no one will save them because only he can. Remember, he basically wished that they would trust him and understood the times, but here he gives this certainty. Based on the way you're going, you won't be ready for it. You won't find a savior where you're looking. You're being judged for mistreating my people. You're being judged for not trusting me. Now, we have to see that God is not being a meanie shaking his fist from heaven when he does these things. He's being gracious. He's telling them the train is coming and they need to get off the tracks. Is it cruel for you to tell someone a train is coming if it's about to run them over? God is warning them. The offer always stood for them to put their trust in him. There were always strangers in the land who desired to serve the Lord. Remember that earlier in the book of Exodus and such? When they went up from Egypt, the, the text records for us that a mixed multitude went up with them. Children, imagine that image. They're going out and passing through the Red Sea and some Egyptians are coming in behind them. Hold on, wait for me. Me too. I'm going with you. Your God's way better than mine. Right? I want to serve him. That's the idea. Israel was to be a light to the nations. The offer was there, but Babylon was not the object of God's love, and they did not get as many warnings. And since we count God as gracious for warning Babylon, warning these foreign nations just a few times, how gracious must we count him for the number of times he warns his own people? Now, if you wanted to lay out a, a percentage sheet, right? A hundred percent of all the warnings in the Bible. Maybe two percent are to people outside of the covenant. The other 98 is to people inside the covenant, warning the people of God. If God is gracious for the 2%, how much more gracious is He to us for the 98%? Who should know better anyway? If God is gracious enough to welcome those outside of the covenant into fellowship with Him, how gracious is He to us in having already brought us into this covenant with Him and giving us this teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can walk with him and be prepared to meet him. What, think about these questions. I'm gonna ask a few, a series of questions here. What leads someone in a land that has experienced the blessing of Christianity like ours, what leads someone to live as a Babylonian? What leads somebody to do that? To think God doesn't really see. That judgment over there, that's nice. I can benefit from this judgment here. What leads someone to think like that? I would argue that the, the, the answer, one of the answers we could give, is found in Matthew 11, one of the verses that we read. It's the last thing that Jesus says before those friends of John go away. He says, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So why does someone think like a Babylonian? Well, they're offended because of Christ. Someone who knows Christianity, I mean, we can all say that about us and people that we know and love in this area. They're offended because of Christ. Maybe we're tempted to be offended because of Christ. I'll give you examples of Not specifics, but how that heart can creep into us. This is not the same thing as being offended by Christ. though That is an issue as well. Being offended because of Christ is quite a thought. Because you can only be offended because of Christ if you already have some relation to Him. Like when you settle for a general service of some God, sitting in churches... These types of people, they fill our churches. They lead the people of this land. They uh, the, uh, Think about the guy Ramashwami, right? The Hindu. He literally believes that all our gods are the same. Right? We all serve God. Look up a picture of a Hindu god. I don't serve that joker. Right? But it's not just him. They lead our country. They sit in our churches. We... Sadly, vote for them. They sit at our dinner tables. These people that have this generic concept of God is because they're offended because of Jesus Christ. Maybe some sit here today and what counts them as one outside of Christ is they are offended because of him. His teachings are made known. They don't really have the boldness to say they're not a Christian, but their lives look nothing different than a few verses ripped out of the meaning that God intended for them. The bumper sticker Christians, the coffee cup Christians. We as a church are always in danger of being offended because of Christ. Not realizing that if we are offended because of him, we are not ready to meet him. Let me tell you how you can know if you are offended because of Christ. There's that thing in your life, in your thinking, that when the pastor preaches on it, you just get mad. You know, it's true. Not just this pastor, anybody. You can't say he's wrong, but you just can't bring yourself to get in line with it. You're offended because of Jesus Christ. You stumble because of Christ. That thing that you always avoid in your Bible reading plan. That topic that you never want to read a book about that God somehow always keeps bringing books into your life to read about. That Christian discipline that you always have an excuse for why you don't practice it. That function in the life of the church that you just won't make time for and the excuse you give, you know it's not very good. Those can be examples of being offended because of Christ. Dear congregation... How can we be offended because of a Savior who is powerful enough to make the blind see and the lame walk? Without him, you would not have eyes to see or legs to walk. How can we be offended because of a Savior who cleanses the unclean and opens up deaf ears? Without him, you would remain unclean, truly a member of Babylon with your ears closed to the truth, of his word, how can we be offended because of a savior who raises the dead and preaches the gospel to those like us who do not deserve it? How could we be offended because of him without him? You would be dead in your trespasses and sins, like the others, like those in Babylon, serving the evil one, rejoicing in your own rejection of him. Our glorious Jesus Christ is the one whom we are being prepared to face, the one whom we are constantly tempted to be offended because of him. Wouldn't it be better to run to him in great joy and gratitude? Wouldn't it be better to live in line with the fact that he is the only one who can die for sin? Wouldn't it be better to hear his word and receive it in love, knowing that he is lovingly preparing you? for his coming. You see, Advent is a time to remember the point of the message. It is to make you ready. Are you trusting him and him only? Does the fact that he sees all have any bearing on your daily life? Dear Christians, young and old, the Lord is in control of all things. He works everything everything into your life through it up one side and down the other so that you might properly walk with him there's a sense in the scriptures that god gives that he is pleading with his people how loving does the creator of all things and god of the universe have to be how patient does he have to be to plead with sinners Paul says, I plead with you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. He is constructing everything so that you would just see him and know. He's that same holy God that knows all things and is in control of all things. But he loves his people and is trying to make us walk properly with him. He is sanctifying us. But he's working to make us ready to meet the Son, the Lord Jesus When he comes again, think about it. From the moment of your birth, everything that happens from then to your death is to prepare you for that moment. Everything that happens in your life is to prepare you for your death. To prepare you for that moment when you will see the Lord. When that moment comes, when Christ descends on the clouds, coming again just as he went. His desire, mine, is that we'd all be able to say, look, there he is, our redeemer. Amen. Let's pray.